We're looking today at the power of Pentecost, which simply means depending on God rather than ourselves. Seminary can equip us in some aspects of ministry, but seminary doesn't make us men and women of God. Only God can make us men and women of God. As Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. God doesn't call us to do what we can do in our own power. We know to do those things anyway. He calls us to do what we can't do without him. Does anybody feel inadequate for the task? Well, we are. But God gives us the adequacy. Now, it's been a long time since I took homiletics, so I hope that a 10-point sermon is all right. But for the sake of time, I'm going to focus on some of these points more than the others. But one preface I need to make before I go into the text is that ancient historians and biographers didn't write merely for antiquarian interest, but they sought to report historical examples useful as models. And so as we look at the text, we're looking at it, yes, as historical information, but also as something that's meant to teach us about God and our relationship with him. So we're looking first in verses four and five at the priority of God's power. Too often we want to depend on technology, on money, on other kinds of resources. But Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise from the Father. In other words, we, one thing we absolutely need for the mission, you know, it's not the technology, though I really am grateful for the technology because my voice would be difficult without the microphone. But, you know, George Whitfield preached, people could hear him like a mile away. So we need to wait for the promise of the Father. And Acts chapter 1, verses 2 through 11, recapitulates, it rehearses what's already in Luke 24, 36 to 53. It's the pivot between Luke's two volumes. So that means we get to hear it twice. It's something that Luke really wanted to communicate to us. This is how Jesus passes on his mission to the church. Verses 6 through 8, we find the promise of God's power. First of all, it's prophetic power. In the Old Testament, for example, in 1 Samuel 19, 1 Samuel 10, Numbers chapter 11, in the Old Testament, God's spirit was often associated with prophetic empowerment. And this was, in fact, the most pervasive aspect of the spirit that was emphasized in early Judaism. And this is something that comes out in this passage, comes out clearly in 2.17 and 18. Um, Moses, in Numbers chapter 11, verse 29, prays, I wish all God's people would be prophets. And that's answered in the book of Joel, where God says he'll pour out his spirit on all flesh. So prophetic power, it's like, it's like saying, you know, you'll be like Isaiah, you'll be like Micah, you'll be like Daniel, you'll be like Huldah, you'll be like Deborah, and, and, and so on. It's also an eschatological empowerment, that is, dealing with the end time, the, the promise of the future, 
The prophets had announced the coming of the Holy Spirit. The prophets had announced the restoration of Israel. And what we see here is a foretaste of, of that future restoration. When the disciples ask the question, so is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're asking that because Jesus has been talking about the kingdom, he's been talking about the spirit, and they already know from scripture that this is an end time promise. But what we receive is a foretaste of our future inheritance, what Paul calls a, a down payment of our future inheritance. In the church, the world around us ought to be able to see a foretaste of what the future world is like. And if they can't, it's because we're living short of our birthright in Christ, the power that he's already given us by the Holy Spirit. We also see in verse 8 that God backs up his gospel with healing and deliverance. And if you don't believe me, if you think I'm being eccentric, just trace the word dunamis, trace the word power through, throughout Luke-Acts. It's not the only way it's used, but it's the predominant way that it's used. And so we can expect God to back up his, his word as we, as we proclaim it. Also, we see that this is to the ends of the earth. It's from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Luke's first volume, the Gospel of Luke, opens with Jerusalem and closes with Jerusalem. Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, opens with Jerusalem but closes with Rome, the heart of the empire where Luke's audience lives. Theologically, what that's saying is that it stays grounded in the heritage, but the spirit moves us forward into mission. We need both word and spirit. We need to look at what God has already done. It's a template for us, and the spirit will drive us forth across all cultural barriers. When he speaks of the ends of the earth, he's echoing especially Isaiah 49, although the, uh, that expression appears in different forms a lot of times in the Old Testament. But when they thought of the ends of the earth, they knew of a lot of the ends of the earth. They didn't know about the Western Hemisphere, um, at least most of Luke's audience wouldn't have known of that, but they knew about China, they knew about India, the Roman Empire had trade ties there. And the ends of the earth are prefigured elsewhere in the book of Acts. For example, in Acts chapter 2, this diaspora Jews from every nation under heaven, it's meant to prefigure where the gospel is going. In Acts chapter 8, the first Gentile Christian, this African court official, actually um, Africa south of Egypt was considered to be the southern ends of the earth. And so this is, again, prefiguring the ends of the earth. And when the gospel goes to Rome, Rome is not the ends of the earth, but again, it's prefiguring where the gospel is going to go. And so today, we still need to reach the ends of the earth. There are still unreached people. And the power that God gave his first disciples, he also gives to us because the mission is ongoing. The mission is ongoing because he passes on his power verses 9 through 11. The, old, the closest Old Testament model we have for Jesus' ascension is the ascension of Elijah. And when Elijah ascends, Elisha gets a double portion of Elijah's spirit, the spirit that was on Elijah. Now, as Jesus ascends, he empowers the original witnesses. 
And we know from Luke 24, these are the 12 and those who were with them. But it's not just the, the 11 and those who were with them. It also becomes a model for subsequent witnesses of a different kind. Because he speaks of this promise of the Holy Spirit in chapter 1, verse 4, again in chapter 2, verse 33. But in verse 39 of chapter 2, he says, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That includes us. And it includes us because the mission is still ongoing. A major feature of Luke-Acts is that many of, the, many of the activities of Jesus in the first volume are continued by Peter and the Jerusalem church in the first part of the second volume and continued by Paul and the Diaspora mission in the later part of the volume, which means it's laying out a pattern for the continued spread of the gospel. Acts is open-ended, as most scholars agree, we still need to reach the ends of the earth. We still need to depend on God's power. And because of that, we pray for God's power. And that's what we see in verse 14. Prayer for God's power. Now, what began across the street, people had been praying for that for over 50 years, since the last time we had a major outpouring like that. And Mike, Michael McClyman, who's a major revival historian, he was, he was visiting there, and his comment on, on this was that he experienced hamathumadan. Say that with me, hamathumadan. Oh, you guys are really good with Greek. Well, that's, that word is here in this verse, and what it means is being together in one spirit, in one mind. They were praying together for a common purpose, and we see them continuing in unity in chapter 2. Verse 1, this fits a pattern in Luke-Acts. You know that Luke is the only gospel in Luke 3, 21 and 22, who mentions that Jesus was praying when the Spirit came on him like a dove. After I finished my four-volume Acts commentary, I was in Indonesia, and I had a dream one night uh, as I was preparing to teach there. I, I had a dream where I was asked, what's the most important thing you learned from, from all of your study of Acts? The most important thing I learned, the, the answer was this. It's not, not unique to me by any means, but it was the most important thing. And that was a pattern of how often the outpouring of the Spirit follows prayer. Sometimes God just does it, but often it follows prayer. And that template is laid out for us in Luke chapter 11 and verse 13. The parallel in Matthew chapter 7 verse 11 says, if you ask for good gifts, your heavenly Father will give those to you. But Luke zeroes in on the best gift of all, the gift of God's own presence, the gift of God himself, the gift of the Holy Spirit. It says, if you ask for the Holy Spirit, your heavenly Father will give you the Holy Spirit. And so, I regularly was praying for, for that for myself and for others, uh, an ever deeper walk with, with the Holy Spirit. We see this in Acts chapter 1, they're praying. Acts chapter 2, the Spirit is poured out. Acts chapter 4, they're praying. They're praying for boldness. 
because they've just been persecuted and told to be quiet and not talk about Jesus after somebody was healed. And so they, so they pray that God will continue to stretch forth his hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done by the name of his holy servant Jesus. So, so they may continue to have boldness. And it says in 431, and when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Again, in Acts chapter 8, verse 15, when, when the apostles heard that the Samaritans had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And of course, the, the emphasis in the book of Acts is empowerment for mission in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And so they're actually praying for the Samaritans to become their partners in mission. This is not a paternalistic model of mission. This is a partnership model of mission where even these new believers are empowered by the Spirit to join them in the mission. We, we see concerts of prayer in the history of this country often before there were great awakenings and outpourings of the Spirit. So moving on to the preparation for Pentecost, Besides praying, there were some other things they needed to do. They needed to replace one of the apostles, uh, one of the original apostles. <clears throat> and this section emphasizes the importance of the eyewitnesses. The gospel that we've received is secure. It's rooted in eyewitness testimony. We need the spirit. We also need the word that's available to us in scripture. And some movements have gone have embraced rightly the spirit or rightly the word, but sometimes haven't fully embraced the other. And we need to bring those together. Having the right people in place for leadership was very important. And I'm, I'm really grateful here. I can think of, I mean, this is, I think, an epicenter of, an epicenter of the spirit's work in North America in terms of serving the global church. And I can think of no, no better leader for, for this, who's led us into this and to continue to lead us into this than, than Timothy Tennant. So grateful for, for his leadership. But we also know that in wider evangelicalism, there have been scandals in leadership. There have been people who fell. Well, that's not a new thing. It happened with Judas, right? So they have to replace that. They do it and they go on. So sometimes we get discouraged when there are scandals, but we don't need to be. We can, we can move on because God is still God. But again, I want to be grateful that we don't have that situation here, <laughs> that we have godly leaders here that God has raised up. The proofs of Pentecost. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. They've been praying. They've, they've put in place the things they can do. But there's only so much they can do. It really depends on God. And so God gives visible signs of the outpouring of his spirit. The wind and the fire, these represent end time signs, like what you have in Ezekiel, where the spirit comes like a, like a wind. Uh, ruach can be wind or breath or spirit. Also, theophanies in the Old Testament. Sometimes you have storm-like phenomena. 
And some of these have been repeated in some outpourings of the Spirit in history. So, for example, in the West Timor revival in 1965, you had it begin with the sound of a rushing mighty wind. And at Pandita Ramabai's orphanage in 1905, you had tongues of fire settling on, on the girls there. The one that's repeated elsewhere in the book of Acts is tongues. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 4, they were filled with the Spirit. They began to speak in other languages, other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And this also has an eschatological significance, as Peter points out in 2.17, where, where he explains this as saying, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my Spirit. Now, Joel says afterwards, but Peter knows the context and he paraphrases it in light of the context. This is, this is the time of the restoration of God's people. So he says, in the last days, God will pour out his spirit. But it's also a cross-cultural empowerment. It's meant to teach us something about the emphasis that, that Luke has in the book of Acts. The spirit does all sorts of things. But the particular emphasis laid out for us in chapter 1 and verse 8 is... Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, in the late 19th century, you had some radical holiness evangelicals who were saying, we've got to reach the world for Christ so Jesus can come back by the year 1900. And so they were praying. They said, we can't spend two years learning languages. We need missionary tongues. And so they were praying for a restoration of this gift of tongues. <clears throat> and then at Azusa Street, people were experiencing that, and many of the missionaries at the Azusa Street Revival went out to evangelize in tongues. And for the most part, it didn't work. <laughs> but they, they were right about the association with mission. That the tongues in 2.4 is not arbitrary, but it was God's way of, of communicating the, the, the point of this outpouring of the Spirit. And the point was that God would empower his people to speak for him, and I believe in this case it was worship, but there's different views on that, but to, to speak for him even across cultural barriers. What greater sign could he have given his church on the day of Pentecost than to enable some of his people to worship him in other people's languages? Hebrew was considered the holy language, but God now sanctifies every language and every culture in which his gospel is declared. Which brings us to the peoples of Pentecost, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. He mentions diaspora Jews from every nation under heaven. So this is a proleptic, a proleptic foreshadowing of the mission to the ends of the earth. Most scholars also see it as a reversal or some sort of recapitulation of the Tower of Babel narrative. Genesis chapter 10, you have the, the Bible's first list of nations, which is updated here in chapter 2. Now, those of you who are really good with math, what chapter comes immediately after Genesis chapter 10? <laughs> exactly, chapter 11. After the Bible's first list of nations, you have the scattering of languages at the Tower of Babel. 
And that was because they rebelled against God. But here, after a list of, of nations, you have the scattering of languages, not because of rebellion, but because of submission. And in this case, it's not a scattering of, as judgment, but in this case, it's a scattering of languages, again, to show us that God welcomes all peoples. Now, going back to Azusa Street, the, the chief leader there, and he, he didn't want to be up front, he often hid in a shoebox and only uh, interrupted prayers when somebody was out of order or something. But the chief leader there was African-American holiness preacher William Seymour. And as the spirit was being poured out there, one eyewitness, Frank Bartleman, declared that the color line had been washed away by the blood. But there was a complication. The color line was washed away by the blood initially, but William Seymour's white mentor, Charles Parham, wanted to come and take over the meetings and change, change the way they were done. Seymour didn't let him, whereupon Parham went around the country denouncing the Azusa Street revival as nothing but, I, I won't repeat his language, but in, he described it in racist language. <clears throat> Seymour's emphasis shifted. He, he still believed in tongues. He still prayed in tongues. I do too. In theological terms, it's fun. <clears throat> but he refocused his emphasis to this part of Acts chapter 2, in that the Spirit's empowerment was to cross all cultural barriers. And nobody dares say that they're filled with the Holy Spirit if they can't love their brother or sister across racial and cultural lines. And this brings us back to an emphasis in terms of the empowerment of the Spirit that we find in, in John Wesley or Pandita Ramabai, that the ultimate expression of the Holy Spirit is the fruit of love. Moving on to the prophecy of Pentecost, because this shows us how Peter was uh, interpreting the passage. There were a number of objections. If you've heard objections to what happened in the past few weeks, uh, there are a number of them online. Most of them are misrepresentations. That's happened in every outpouring in history, including the first one. You guys are drunk. <laughs> but there were other people there who said, what is this? To which Peter responded, this is what Joel meant when he prophesied. The Spirit will be poured out on your, on your sons and daughters, all ethnicities, all flesh. Peter didn't get that part yet until chapter 10. But both genders, young and old, and this would characterize the last days. <clears throat> now, I'm not the best person with math. That's why I had to ask you what chapter followed chapter 10. But if it was the last days then, if anything, it should be laster days now. <clears throat> So, and also he says, you know, because it's this period of the last days, because the Spirit's being poured out, this is the era where we can call in the Lord's name for salvation. Some people think that the outpouring of the Spirit, and some people think that the spirit of prophecy is not for today. Well, if it's not, then we're also not in the era of salvation. And we're also not in laster days. <clears throat> salvation is for whoever calls in the Lord's name. And this brings us to the preaching of Pentecost in 2.22 to 39. As Peter goes on to explain the passage, 
interrupts his quotation. The quotation is, whoever calls on the Lord's name will be saved. Whoever calls on Yahweh's name will be saved. It goes on to say, as many as the Lord our God shall call, but Peter saves that for the end. In between, he's giving us a good midrash, explaining what it means to call on the Lord's name, on Yahweh's name. <clears throat> and he goes on to preach about Jesus. As uh, has been said in the past few weeks, Jesus is the only celebrity. Peter interrupts his quotation to show what the Lord's name is. He says, we're all witnesses. Jesus is risen. And scripture identifies the risen one with the Lord. So you need to call on the Lord to be saved. You need to call on the name of Jesus to be saved. And he preaches it in a, in a dramatic way, saying that they needed to call on Jesus' name by being baptized in Jesus' name. Uh, don't do that while you're underwater, though. What he's talking about is turning to a new life. Jewish people had all sorts of ceremonial washings, but the one kind of ceremonial washing that was turning from one life to another was when Gentiles converted to Judaism. Peter is calling Jewish people to come to God on the same terms as Gentiles. God doesn't have any grandchildren. It's like John the Baptist said, you know, don't think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. And he, he called on them to, to turn to God. So the preaching of Pentecost is preaching about Jesus. It's preaching about repentance. It's preaching about wholehearted devotion to the true Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, that means everything rightly belongs to him. This brings us to the people of Pentecost. It shows us something about the purpose of Pentecost in 241 to 47. In Pauline language, it's not just about gifts. Gifts are important. We, we depend on God's gifts to minister. But it's not just about gifts. It's about fruit of the Spirit. And we see that in 2.42 and 46 to 47, which emphasize that prayer didn't stop with the outpouring, but prayer continued after the outpouring. Also, apostolic teaching which for us, we get that most readily in scripture. And sharing meals together. Now, of course, we have it easy here on campus. We've got a cafeteria where we can eat together. We have uh, Bible classes and we have chapel and so on. But this is also a template for us as God's people, as the church, together around Jesus. But notice in the middle of this section, I mean, at the beginning, thousands respond when Peter preaches. But at the end, people respond because they see how the church is living. And right in the heart of this, we see that this call is so radical that it leads to sacrificial generosity. I mean, it's one thing to say, I love you, brother, sister. It's another thing to, to give God our, our wallets, our pocketbooks. And it's the same expression of repentance that we see in chapter 3 and verse 11 of Luke's Gospel, where John the Baptist is preaching repentance. People say, what should we do? He says, if you have two cloaks, give one to the person who has none. And, and do the same with, with food. Luke chapter 12, verses 33, uh, verse 33, and chapter 14, verse 33. No one can be my disciple unless they give up all their possessions. Charles Finney was preaching about this in the 
um, mid-1800s at a wealthy New England church pastored by Lyman Beecher. Lyman Beecher got up and kind of apologized for him afterwards and said, now, Jesus wants you to be willing to give up everything, but he wouldn't actually ask you to do it, so don't worry. Whereupon, Finney got back up and said, you don't lose all your possessions at the moment of conversion, but you do lose your ownership of them. Because if Jesus is Lord of our life, he's Lord of everything we are and everything we have. And this lifestyle of the church brought in others into the kingdom. So pulling all this together, the empowerment by the Spirit enables us to fulfill God's mission. It creates a new multicultural community committed to Christ and to one another. And we see that God promises the Spirit to those who pray. And so Pastor Jessica Legron will lead us in prayer.